Father God, it's a delight to be preaching this morning. Would you pray with me as we come to God's Word? Father, we're so thankful for all these sweet moments of community and grace. Thank you that, yeah, this is your church. These are your people. Each one of us belong to you as sheep of the ultimate shepherd, as children of the Father. Uh, we come to you again this morning knowing that we need you to breathe on us afresh. Jesus, would you come and do what only you can do? Would you open up our eyes and hearts to understand and our minds to know your word, to receive the gospel, maybe for the first time or freshly, and that you'd help our hearts respond in worship. As again, we, we start this Advent season of preparing our hearts and looking to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, as guys have said before me, we are into, it's December, which means it's Christmas time and uh, Mariah Carey starts to bring in the royalties again from All I Want for Christmas is You, playing in every store and shop. And uh, this week, we're starting a new preaching series that'll take us to the end of the year, till Christmas Day, called The Songs of Christmas. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1 and 2. And four of the songs that we see as God uh, meets people and encourages them about the coming of Jesus. Uh, Mary's song, Zechariah's song, the angel's song, and Simeon's song. And all of these sort of songs are uh, responses to the news about the coming of Jesus. We see the angel Gabriel appears to Mary to say, you're going to bring Jesus into the world. She responds in worship, and then later on, uh, Jesus' cousin, which is John the Baptist, um, is born, and his father, Zechariah, bursts out in like a prophetic praise song about uh, Jesus and what will happen. And later on, the angels appear to the shepherds and sing songs of worship to Jesus, and then later on, Simeon, who's at this stage of Luke to an old man, uh, meets the baby Jesus and responds in worship. And so each of these kind of responses we'll be looking at are kind of songs, prophetic declarations, prayers wrapped up into one, uh, but they're responses to the coming of Jesus and the good news of what we are celebrating this Advent as we prepare our hearts toward Christmas Day and beyond. But uh, I don't wonder if you've heard the name Isaac Watts. Anyone know the name Isaac Watts? Well, you will definitely know a few, if you've been in church for a while, you may know uh, some songs, some hymns he's written. Uh, he, he, as a young boy, went to church and he didn't like the songs that they sung. He found them boring and he just didn't engage in worship at all. And so his father, being a good dad, challenged him, saw some musical ability in this guy, little Isaac, and said, right, well, I challenge you, my son, to write better songs that you would enjoy and maybe people your age would enjoy. And this is about the year 1700. And uh, he became one of the greatest, most prolific hymn uh, writers uh, in history. He wrote, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross is a song he wrote. Another song he wrote is the song Joy to the World, which I think captures in one paragraph the essence of what we're wanting to do here during Advent. And it just, it says this, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room 
and heaven and nature thing. I said, I think I said angels. Hey, I copy Google got it wrong. Sorry, I copy pasted. But heaven and nature thing. Just in one paragraph, he's nailed what what it's about. That there is no joy like the joy Jesus gives when he comes. It's better than men's powers and presents. It is like receiving that joy depends on receiving him as our king. And so there's a response for us uh, as we lead into this time for us again in our hearts to prepare him room. Maybe some of us are doing that for the first time. Maybe we're doing it again. Christmas gives us this opportunity. Advent gives us an opportunity to again prepare our hearts for Jesus as we remember what it's all about, that there would be worship and even great singing. So this morning, we're going to look at Mary and Mary's response to this amazing news. Our um, text, if you want to open your Bible and, and get there, we're going to be working through it section by section. So it might be helpful to have the whole thing in front of you if that, if that would help you. But the, our text is Luke 1, 39 to 56. And just to give us some context into where we've been uh, previously in the story is that the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her basically the story of what God has done to choose her as the one who would bring Jesus into the world. That she's going to fall pregnant miraculously, uh, that's it, without the help of her husband, Um and of course, you can imagine what Joseph might be feeling. And in his grace, there's stories elsewhere that say that an angel appears to him too to confirm, no, this is legit. She's not pulling one over on each other. Like, this is God's plan. It's from him. Jesus is coming into the world. Uh, and amazingly, Mary trusts what God is saying. And we're going to unpack some of how she responds this morning in what is called the Magnificat. But just to... Give us more context. We'll be kicking off here at verse 39, which uh, shows us uh, that she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. So from verse 39, it says, In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt inside her. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill what he has spoken to. We'll just pause there for now. You see what's happening is, obviously she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and there seems to be a Holy Spirit-enabled uh, recognition of who has just stepped into the room. Not just Elizabeth, uh, Mary, but the baby inside Mary. That's, that's Jesus, God in the flesh, in the womb of Mary, that there seems to be a spirit-empowered recognition of what's happened here. You see it in John the Baptist inside Elizabeth. It says he kicks and he realizes sort of what's going on, even as a little kind of fetus. It's written like there's a recognition. This same John the Baptist who would spend his whole ministry 
and even life, preparing the way for Jesus and who would later on be the one who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is even in this moment recognizing who has just stepped into the room. And likewise with Elizabeth, says she's filled with the Holy Spirit and she prophesies all these things about Mary and who is with Mary. Not just a baby, not just any baby, but the Lord. That he's not just stepped into the room, but stepped into the world as the Savior, God in the flesh, the Son Jesus. And in the remainder of these verses that we'll spend time unpacking this morning, verses 46 to 56, uh, she responds with a kind of song or, or a prayer of worship for God's grace and mercy. And uh, it's called the Magnificat. And uh, this Magnificat, it's a Latin word. Uh, there were about apparently eight or so hymns that the ancient church had in their repertoire that they would come back to many times. And this, these verses are one of those verses. Uh, so for our Bible notes, yeah, this is called the Magnificat. Not to be confused with the lesser known Magnificent. But, uh, lame joke, sorry. I repent. But the Magnificant just simply means, uh, it's a Latin word, it just means my soul magnifies the Lord. And it's a direct translation of what verse 46 there. And so let's unpack this together. I've got three points as we unpack it of what Mary is emphasizing as she just pours out praise to God for God's grace on her life. The first thing is this, that Mary praises God for his personal grace in her life. God's personal grace. It's verse 46 to 49. And Mary said, this is now, remember, in response to Elizabeth's prophetic uh, words about what's happening. She says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's the Magnificat. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now, all generations will call me blessed. Because the mighty one has done great things for me. And his name is holy. So Mary's saying here is just, she's overflowing. And saying God has been so gracious to her. You can see she's overflowing. It, it says there again, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. It's just like all of her is spilling out and overflowing in worship for God's massive blessing in her life. She even says, all generations will call me blessed. Uh, and I just want to quickly clarify something here that as Protestants here, we, we just mean that, that it means what it says, right? So we don't believe that there is any like unique, special um, thing happening with, with Mary in this moment. She's not like becoming divine. She's not becoming any kind of uh, a saint or whatever it is like that. Uh, you know, Catholics may say it differently, but we just see this blessing. What does that blessing actually mean? It's just simply saying that it's in a massive privilege that for, of all the women that have ever existed, she would be the one who would ever bring the Lord into the world. Massive privilege that she is blessed. That she would have the privilege of raising Jesus up, feeding him, taking care of him. The, the actual God in the flesh, this God-man Jesus, she would have the privilege of mothering him. It's a massive privilege. 
And so she says the Lord has looked on her with favor, that she is blessed, that God has done great things for her. She's praising God for his grace in her life in a very personal way. And uh, I don't know where you find yourselves this morning. Maybe those kind of three words, favor and blessing and God's greatness resonate with you. And you just, you have a lot to praise God for. Maybe something great has happened in your life. You found work. You've uh, you're pregnant with your own child. You, something great has happened. Maybe you'd call, uh, use those words to describe your situation. On the other hand, maybe those words don't resonate with you. And the year's been tough and you feel a lack of favor or, or blessing or that God hasn't been particularly great to you. Maybe that's what it feels like. I think what these, uh, what these verses are encouraging us with is maybe reorienting and correcting some of the way we use that word blessed. Well, I think the word blessing, we've got it so wrong. We, we typically only use the word blessed to describe when life is really going well. Like, man, I am so blessed. Or if or something great happens to you, or if you get something great in your life, you say, this is a massive blessing. Like, I've never heard, myself included, anyone really you use that word to describe life when things are not going well. Like you've just had a massive loss or you're grieving and say, life is just blessed. I'm feeling blessed. Hashtag blessed. It's not really how we describe things at that time. But what Mary's helping us see here is that there is a blessing in our lives that transcends the temporary circumstances of how life is going, good or bad. There is something even greater that has happened that is the ultimate blessing you and I could ever receive. Of course, this is a unique thing for her as a mother of Jesus that none of us will ever know about. But in a similar way, we're likewise blessed because Jesus has come for us. He's come to save us. It's the ultimate expression of God's favor and blessing and greatness in our lives. Knowing God is the greatest blessing. That, that's what we're kind of celebrating and remembering during Advent. There was a time when we didn't know God. And yet he came and he entered in. And he has come for us. The incarnation, it's, it's an incredible act of God's grace and mercy towards us. Michael Reeves says this, In the incarnation, the one on high became love. The creator became a creature. The word became speechless. The very power of God became a fetus. The one high priests trembled to approach was there in the flesh, now with and alongside his people forever. It carries weight, doesn't it? God with us. Jesus Emmanuel, that is the gift. That is the ultimate blessing God has given to us. To be with and alongside us forever. You, you, may, you may have many needs this morning, many things on your heart, many areas in which you're crying out for God to hashtag bless us and care for us. And by His grace, we can bring those things to Him. But friends, I want to encourage us this morning to remember the ultimate blessing that He's shown us if you're a believer. There is nothing more beautiful than the gift of Jesus given to us. That God is with us. 
was it C.S. Lewis that summarized what Christmas is about. He said, the Son of God became a man so that men can become sons of God. This is the very reason he entered in. This is what his favor and his blessing and his greatness in our lives ultimately looks like, that he entered in to deal with the sin that separates us from him, to bring us and win us to himself, that we might know him and that we might be known by him and loved by him. God has come. It's the ultimate blessing. We have a blessing that transcends the circumstances of life in Jesus. God's greatest gift. So Mary is saying, this is amazing. This is your ultimate expression of grace in my life. And likewise for us, that God has come and that we know him. So Mary praises God for his grace at work in her life at a very personal level. But not only that, secondly, Mary praises God for his redeeming grace at work in the world towards his people. So verses 50 to 53 is so amazing. It says this, his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. These verses are incredible. And uh, what some people have called the great reversal is what's, what's happening in these verses. Uh, some theologians have even said that these words are revolution. And uh, it might be interesting to you to note that in the 1970s and 80s, several South American countries banned the reading of these verses because they thought it was too much of a, of a threat, that God would basically say that he could topple the powers and the principalities or, 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 or the thrones of the governments. So they banned the reading of it because it was just too revolutionary. But of course, it's not a revolution of violence and power. Rather, it's a great reversal of the values of the world through the initiating gospel and how Jesus would change things as his kingdom comes to bear on our lives. Verse 51, it talks about a moral reversal. It says that the proud get scattered because they have a broken heart condition. Verse 52 says that it includes a social and even political reversal that he has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Verse 53 says there might even be an economic reversal. It says he has toppled the mighty, uh, sorry, he has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And so there's a, a complete reversal of values here. And one of the things that's happening is God is, you might notice, dealing with the proud. The proud get humbled. There's a couple of things I want to say on these verses, but the first thing is just looking into our pride a little bit. Uh, it's clear that God doesn't delight in how big we think we are. Our own sense of donkey can read my mind here. Can we get another bunch of flowers? 
So God doesn't delight in how big we think we are. Like our own sense of power and greatness and, and even safety, it doesn't impress God. It doesn't make us spiritually superior to God or more lovely to God. In fact, there's a great reversal. The proud get humbled and it's the humble who, who have no strength. God reaches down for them and exalts them. It's quite amazing. God takes issue with our pride here. And just to put it in everyday language for us, it's the people that think they have no need for God that don't receive grace and actually end up receiving judgment. There's a self-sufficiency in them. They think they don't need it. And so verse 50 summarizes it for us here. Who gets the grace of God? His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. Those who know they need God and regard him, get him. That's part of, how, of what faith in Jesus looks like. It's part of how it works. And so what Advent is doing at, at this Christmas time is telling us that our greatest need is God himself. That's why he had to enter in to change things. That the Son came to seek and save us, to find us. In many ways, what it's actually saying is that we have to come to turn terms with our lack of self-sufficiency to truly, truly appreciate what Christmas is all about. Uh, Paul Tripp nails it here. He says this, The Christmas story reminds us that hopelessness is the only doorway to true and eternal hope. It's only when you give up on you that you seek and celebrate what God in holy love offers you in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? It's my encouragement to us, firstly, as we look at pride a little bit, is just to recognize that we need God more than anything. And if you're a Christian today, maybe just to kind of reorder the loves of your heart afresh and repent and say, God, you're right. I've put other things first, maybe. I need you first in my life again. And maybe that's something you want to do for the first time today. We'd love to help you do that. We'd love to pray with you for that. But as I alluded to earlier, this is not just a spiritual, moral, kind of invisible issue. The more I've read commentaries and stuff on this, the more challenged I am. This seems to be a, a very practical few verses that Mary is declaring. She's saying that Jesus initiates in his coming tangible transformation in the world as his kingdom advances. And this is already and not yet, right? So things are only one day going to be put back to how they should have been in the, in the first place. But we're going to see more of his renewing grace day by day. And so it's the, it's the incarnation is a physical thing that includes physical consequences. He comes to primarily rescue us from our sin and our separation but his, the gospel's all about how he redeems his people from terrible situations and renews things back to the way they should have been. And it's the redemption that I think are at focus here because Mary's sort of looking back at history. She is alluding to and even quoting the Old Testament. I won't go into all of it, but I'd love you to, to study it. Like she, she's quoting story after story from the Old Testament, looking back and saying, God has done amazing things. When his people Israel were in the darkest place without hope, he toppled the powers. 
and he brought them out of it and he's exalted the lowly. And, and that's kind of what she's saying again and again. He, he has intervened and redeemed his people from terrible situations. And so she's looking back and saying, this is our God. He's done it again and again. Because of who he is, he's a redeeming God. The good news for us today is that he hasn't changed. He's still a redeeming God. And of course, he works out his plan according to his wisdom according to his sovereign plan. But just to encourage us here, what does this mean for us practically? One of the things, and there may be a few different directions we could go in. This is just one I'm going to say, stick closely to the text, is that God sees corrupt governments. So he's not blind to them. He sees suffering of his people. He sees the exploitation of the poor and so on. He can redeem broken situations. And fam, I, just was, I think this speaks to our hope because as we consider the gospel and how Jesus enters in to bring renewal and practical real change in our cities and world, uh, as he comes to redeem and actually change things, I think they are, particularly as we consider Advent again, this all hinges on the coming of Jesus, right? There are two opposite areas I think we need to avoid here. The one, maybe not, where most of us live, but still an error to avoid, is triumphalism. So triumphalism is this whole idea that like Jesus has accomplished everything on his death and resurrection. Therefore, we as his people live in the victory today. And there's echoes of truth there. But of course, it's, 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 we don't have guaranteed success. Nothing but the best is not always going to come to us. Like it's that worldview that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Which is, of course, not entirely true. The New Testament gives us loads of verses telling us that life is going to be tough. We're going to go through pain. We're going to uh, struggle. Uh, we're going to be wronged. We're going to be subject to disappointment and pain. There's going to be brokenness all the way through our life. So triumphalism is untrue and unhelpful. And I don't want to say any of that because I don't want to set you up for disappointment in God. It's unbiblical. But the opposite error for us to avoid is pessimism, which basically says that things are getting worse and we should expect them to get even more worse and we have no hope. God, would you come now and rescue us from this? I think some of us can live there, right? I think just as I've been listening to my own art friendships, we have to process this. I think Hope is that, a, I don't want to be dramatic here, but I think hope in our city is maybe at an all-time low. Uh, there just seems to be a lack of confidence in, in how things are going to work out. And my friends, this is what I want to say to us here. We may not see things in our lifetime get to how we think they should look, but we know the one who is involved and active, even in the city of Joburg. The gospel says Jesus has come to initiate a great reversal and he's still a redemptive God that can deal with corruption and poverty and all these things. He's come to renew and redeem. The gospel says he does that. It's not just about optimism, though. That's not what I'm, even though Doug will tell you, I am a glass half full kind of guy. It's not about optimism. It's about something so much better than optimism. It's about trusting 
that Jesus really does what he says he does and that he is who he says he is. That he's not a liar. And that the world is in his hands. Another quote here by Henry Nunn. It says this, Optimism and hope are radically different attitudes. Optimism is the expectation that things, the weather, human relationship, the economy, the political situation, and so on, will get better. Hope is trust that God will fulfill God's promises to us in a way that leads us to true freedom. The optimist speaks about concrete changes in the future. The person of hope lives in the moment with the knowledge and trust that all of life is in good hands. And so what I want to encourage us with here simply is to remember what Advent is all about. The coming of Jesus is a time for us to remember the world, our nation, our city, your life is in his hands. And even for us to remember as we consider these maybe some of the outworkings of how the gospel comes to bear on our city that, and even in our suburbs here, that we don't have the influence. We have to admit these things. We don't have the influence. We don't have the resources. As a church, we, we lack the, the amount of people we need to do the things we want to do. We lack the funds to affect the change we would love to affect. There seems to be more need uh, than we as a church can meet. But God, would you come and do it so that the world can look on and say, only God. He's still a redeeming God. He's still a renewing God. And so there's these revolutionary verses here should land on us with some weight. It's, it's what's happened with the initiation of the kingdom through the gospel. There is a renewal that takes place over time and ultimately one day, if not now. And we trust the God in whose hands everything rests while we don't see everything clearly. So Mary is praising God because he shows profound grace in her personal life and that he has redeemed his people and renews the brokenness of the world. And lastly, that Mary praises God for his covenant grace to his people. His covenant grace to his people. Verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So the summary here in these verses would be that God is faithful. God is faithful. God is committed to remembering his promises and remembering his people. That's what's happening in these verses. And just think about it, the thousands and thousands of years from Abraham to Jesus to us today and to the very end of the age, God is faithful and he keeps his covenant promises to his people. If, you, if you're wondering what is a covenant, how does it work? One thing that I find helpful is to contrast how a contract works and how a covenant works because we often operate by contracts. A contract says you keep your end of the deal and I'll keep mine. A covenant says I'm with you even when you don't keep your end of the deal. So we often operate by contracts, right? Our love sometimes is so conditional. Uh, sometimes 
we're kind of like, you do your bit, I'll do my bit. And when you fail to do your bit, I'll feel like, hang on, you know, why am I doing my bit? And we'll start this whole power play thing. That's how contracts work. We break our promises to the people we love. Sometimes we even bring it into our spiritual lives. Like how many times have we broken promises we've made to God, right? We say, God, I promise I'll start doing that. God, I promise I'll stop doing that. And then we fail again and again. And, and even in the midst of that, we kind of feel like God loves us a little less each time. That's how contracts work. That's not how covenants work. The God of a covenant says, I love you even when you don't love me. I'm with you even when you mess it up. Even when you fail to be faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. I have pledged myself to you. God is so faithful even when we don't deserve it. Friends, he doesn't run out of grace. He hasn't given up on his people. He never writes us all. Because it's not dependent on us in any way. It's dependent on who he is. Just imagine for a moment if God's covenant with us depended on us. Right? We'd be forgotten about a long time ago. But that's not how God works. It's dependent on who He is and what He has promised to do. And God does not break His promises or forsake His people. He is faithful. Let's take a moment to look at those verses again. Just um, some, some two amazing things I want us to see here that helps us. From verse 50 to 56, I think it says, or 51 to 56, it says, He has, He has, He has. He's done this, He's done this, He's done this. Now that is written, those words he has is written in the Greek uh, aorist tense, which is past tense. And what's interesting here is that this kind of prayer or song is kind of sung in a way that it's like looking back with expectation of what's to come. So in a way she's looking forward while saying this is a past tense thing. So what's going on there? Why would she say this kind of future grace is written in past tense? Well, it's to emphasize that it's as good as done. It's not conditional. It's not going to change. It is as good as done. It's like it's already happened. God will be faithful. He will do it. He has done it already in a sense. And particularly with regards to these last two verses in 54 and 55, God has remembered his people and his promises. Now you, you might see the name Abraham there and wonder why Abraham? Like if God or, or if, if uh, Mary's trying to make the point that God has been faithful to all his people, why not start with Adam and go right to the beginning, right? Why start like a few generations in? Well, the reason is that God made a covenant with Abraham that she's alluding to here that is so helpful for us. And it takes place in Genesis 12. God makes a covenant with Abram. His name hasn't changed yet. And the, the promise, the covenant would be that he would be the father of many nations. Uh, you know the old kids' church song? Father Abraham, many sons, right? I'll spare you from trying to sing it. But that's, that's what it's talking about here. That even though he's old, and even though he hasn't got any kids, that God would do it. And uh, that he would eventually be the ancestor of a great line of people. And there's an amazing summary of this whole thing in Genesis 17 verse 5. Where God comes to change his name. It says, your name will no longer be Abram, 
your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. And so God changes his name. Abraham or Abram just means high father, whereas Abraham means father of a multitude. So God changes his name to tell him what's going to happen and to confirm that there is like a link between this covenant and his identity. God will do it. He's changed that. And that's exactly what happens. He has a son or has a few kids. One of his uh, children is, is Isaac, and there's an ancestral line via Isaac. If you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, all the way from Isaac to Jesus. But God has kept that promise. You see, this promise, this covenant, is not just that there would be more people on earth because of Abraham. It's ultimately that Jesus would come into the world as a descendant of Abraham. And that through belief in him, there would be a whole generations of the generations of descendants coming after Jesus who get added into the family. That's you and me. Isn't that amazing? God has faithfully protected that line from Abraham all the way, generation after generation, to make sure that he keeps his covenant of bringing the Messiah into the world in the way he said, that he would keep his covenant promises. And so that kid's song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. And then what does it say? I am one of them, and so are you. Let's all praise the Lord. Right? And no, no, won't go there. But I am one of them, and so are you. So what happens then in the gospel? What happens in this covenant promise that Mary is recounting and now recognizing it's here and then looking forward to? She's saying that when you put your faith in Jesus, you get added into the family and you become a child forever. Because of Jesus coming to save his people from his sins, we become descendants too. That's what that verse is saying in 54. He has remembered his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. That includes us. And so we get his mercy. His mercy is ultimately shown in his son, right? That he's come to save us into his family. And that's what Advent is telling us, that God has come not only to fulfill that covenant, but ultimately as the story progresses, that he would bring us into a new, perfect covenant through his blood. Just we wrap it up this morning. I don't know what circumstances or situations you find yourself in, church, but this story here, as we even think about the larger coming of Jesus for us, it's an evidence and expression and a reminder that God's grace has come to find us. His deeply personal grace working in each of our lives. His grace that redeems his people throughout history. His covenantal grace that tells us he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And that he's right with us to the very end. We're going to pray. Tornal's going to help us take communion. But I just want to encourage us this morning. This God who has come for us. Let's look to him again this morning. And trust him and say, God, your grace is beautiful. It's sufficient. It's enough. It's what I need. It's what I want. Thank you for your grace. Let's pray together.
Yes, Father, we, we are thankful for your grace. God, thank you that you have been faithful to your covenants and that even today we're here under a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. Made sons and daughters of the King, brought home, kept forever, and guarded by you right to the end. We're so thankful for that, Father. We pray this morning even that you would lift our faith to the level of your word, that you're still the redemptive God, that we can call on you and lean on you, and especially at a very personal level, that you are working in your grace in the lives of your people. We need your grace freshly this morning. Would you come meet each one of us where we're at? Would you come open hearts to see you? Would you come help us believe in you again or for the first time? We declare we trust you, the God who has been faithful throughout history is the same God and hasn't changed. We put our lives in your hands again this morning. We pray that you would lift our gaze to the grace giver, ultimately in Jesus Christ.